Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from 60 Minutes, Rachel Maddow, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, and Counterspin. began thinking about running for president two years ago, he turned to a small inner circle of political advisors from his 2004 Senate campaign. Like Obama, they were talented, laid back, and idealistic, with limited exposure on the national stage. But with the candidates' help, the team orchestrated one of the most improbable and effective campaigns in American political history. They took a little-known senator with a foreign-sounding name in almost no national experience and got him elected the 44th president of the United States. They did it by recruiting and vesting millions of volunteers in the outcome, by raising more money than any campaign in history, and by largely ignoring the fact that their candidate happened to be a black man. When President-elect Obama gave his victory speech Tuesday night in Chicago's Grant Park, he was quick to give credit. To the best campaign team ever assembled in the history of politics, you made this happen. And I am... Who was Obama talking about and how did they do it? Ninety minutes after the speech ended, we were sitting down with him in a Chicago hotel suite. It was one o'clock in the morning and the reality of it all was just beginning to sink in. We just left Grant Park. What are you feeling? Uh, a little numb, a little tired, a little overwhelmed. The group included David Axelrod, Obama's chief strategist and political alter ego, and David Pluff, the camera-shy campaign manager and field general who made it all happen. Yeah, it's been a 22-month road and uh, a lot of twists and turns, but, uh, you know, I think he filled the stage tonight. There was senior aide Robert Gibbs, who was always at Obama's side, his former and future press secretary. And it was uh, <clears throat> fun to watch all the people come out who've been part of the campaign. And uh, <clears throat> By the way, Robert's our spokesman. <laughs> when did you lose your voice? Uh, within the last few hours. A prerequisite for your job, Robert. <laughs> and finally, Anita Dunn, a relative newcomer who handled communications, research, and policy. The only person missing from the brain trust was the candidate himself. How big a role did he play in this campaign? Well, no one had a bigger role. The great thing about our campaign was we didn't have a lot of discussion about what our message was or what he wanted to do. From the beginning, he knew exactly what he wanted to say. And it's one of the reasons we were successful. A lot of campaigns will uh, spend hours every day wondering about how to change their message. And he was pretty clear about what he wanted to say, where he wanted to take the country, and either people would accept it or they wouldn't. When it began 22 months ago on a frigid day in Springfield, Illinois, almost it seemed on an impulse, there was no money and no real organization, only a vast untapped reservoir of disaffected voters and potential volunteers. This campaign can't only be about me. It must be about us. It must be about what we can do together. When we uh, started the campaign, we, we met around a table like this and there were just a handful of us in the campaign. Uh, you know, we started with nothing. And uh, Barack said to us, I want this to be a grassroots campaign. I want to reinvigorate our democracy. I want to bring more people back into our government. First of all, I think that's the only way we can win. And secondly, I think uh, we've, we need to rekindle some idealism that uh, we, together we can get things done in this country. Did any of you seriously think that he had a shot? We thought he had a shot. I actually think we knew what big underdogs we were. And he got into this very un, in a very unusual way. Most people plan this for years. They spend a lot of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, planning for it. We uh, got into this very unconventionally. We planned for days. For days. <laughs> yeah. And in many respects, that made it challenging, but I think we were better for it because we were more agile. Uh, we um, were not afraid to take risks. 
and uh, we didn't have the stifling pressure of expectations. And, and my fundamental concern for him wasn't whether he had the capacity, because I think he's uh, the smartest guy that I've ever uh, worked with or known, uh, but uh, it was whether he had that pathological drive to be president. You know, so often what defines presidential candidates is this need to be president, to define themselves. He didn't have that. And, uh, you know, we told him, you're going to have to find some way to motivate yourself, and he did, which was what he could do as president. There were just so many people, reporters, pundits, everybody, who said that you're not going to be able to elect a black man president of the United States. It's just not going to happen right now. Um, obviously, that had to be part of your equation in planning this campaign. No, honestly, uh, you had to take a leap of faith in the beginning that the people could get uh, by race, and I think the number of meetings we had about race was zero. Right? Zero. We uh, had to believe in the beginning uh, that uh, he would be a, a strong enough candidate, that people of every background and race would be for him. The only time we got uh, involved in the discussion of race was when people asked us about it. Uh, it was a fascination of the news media. It was a fascination of the political community. You certainly must have had some meetings on it during the Jeremiah Right. Affair. Well, the Jeremiah Wright affair uh, was uh, probably uh, a pivotal moment in this whole campaign. Uh, uh, you know, pandemonium erupted in the political community, and uh, uh, there was the sense that we were at a, in crisis. Not God bless America! God damn America! The videotaped rantings of Obama's former pastor brought the issue that the campaign had long sought to avoid center stage, and it took them all by surprise. We'd all acknowledge that we should have been aware of uh, some of, you know, the, these tapes were available. We didn't review all of the tapes of Jeremiah Wright as we should have. And uh, as a result, we were kind of caught flat-footed uh, on some of these tapes. But, the you know, we should have recognized that once that happened, that race is such a fascinating of the political community and the news media that it would take off as it did, uh, and and it did. I, that, that was a terrible weekend. You know, the the excerpts were endlessly looped on television. Yeah, and the only one who was calm was was Obama. Yeah. The candidate called his aides and told them he wanted them to clear some time on his schedule. He uh, said, uh, "You know what." I'm going to make a speech about race and talk about Jeremiah Wright in the perspective of, a, of the larger issue. And he said, neither people will accept it or I won't be president of the United States. But if, at least I'll have said what I think needs to be said. There wasn't a discussion. No. If there had been a discussion, right. we've often joked, probably most of the people in the campaign would have advised against it. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of his own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, young and old, is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. You know, it was a moment of real leadership. Uh, at that moment, I think, when he gave that race speech in Philadelphia, people saw a president. Obama's appeal, his message of change, and a rapidly failing economy eventually helped mute concerns about race, and the enormity of Obama's grassroots field operation began to overwhelm the opposition. Oh, great. Thanks for all your support. It raised more than $600 million. Thank you so much for your support. Much of it from small contributors over the Internet, and it recruited an army of volunteers from all walks of life, young and old, for Obama. Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And the campaign ventured beyond traditional Democratic strongholds into Republican territory. We competed everywhere. There wasn't a state we didn't go to, regardless of its size, that we didn't think we could compete in, caucus states and primary states. <clears throat> and I think you look at that map tonight, and there are states that are blue because of the effort that we put in a long, long time ago and built a grassroots effort up uh, starting on day one. And we were ridiculed at times for people coming out and having crowds that were excited to see our candidate. I'm pretty sure they're not ridiculing us tonight. 
We went around in, in June and July, and people said, well, what's your general election strategy? And we laid it out. We said, here are the 18 states we think are going to be battlegrounds, and Indiana and North Carolina were on there, and absolutely no one took it seriously. As Especially fact, the McCain campaign. Particularly the McCain campaign. Mm -hmm. David's mantra for the general election was that we were going to enlarge the playing field and that we weren't going to run the same campaigns that had been run in the past where it all came down to just one state, you know, at three or four in the morning. How did you win states like North Carolina and Indiana? Well, first of all, we believed we could. I mean, I think part of it is not being... Uh, uh, afraid to uh, to venture out and try and win in what has been considered hostile territory. But we also had these volunteers. And without them, the idea of winning North Carolina and Indiana would be a bridge too far. And our campaign was the art of the possible uh, because of these millions of people out there. And if we decided we wanted to go register 500,000 people in a state, we could because of them. And that's exactly what they did in North Carolina, where race did matter when it came to registering huge numbers of minority voters. Pluff called it growing the electorate, and it changed the political map. In Indiana, the number of Obama field offices staffed mostly by volunteers outnumbered the McCain campaign 44 to none. They used Internet sites like Facebook and Twitter to engage young voters, and they canvassed neighborhoods street by street, identifying supporters and entering the information into a central database. It helped them determine who had voted early and who might need a ride to the polls on Election Day. I mean, our field operations and our targeting and uh, all of that stuff was done at a, with a level of sophistication that exceeded anything that had been uh, done before. And it was a marvel to watch the, the bells and whistles that people uh, are kind of shaking their heads at in wonderment were a direct result of, of David Pluff. Uh, we've all worked in campaigns a lot, and volunteerism in politics is a dying thing. And to see this many people getting involved, giving $25 manning phone banks, becoming neighborhood team captains, um, you know, hasn't been seen in a very long time. And I hope that that is the legacy of this campaign. You ran an incredibly effective and disciplined campaign. It's certainly one of the most effective presidential campaigns that's ever been run. There was no infighting, no real leaks, almost no turnover. Um, how did you manage that? I, I, even the Republicans were in awe. Well, it starts with the candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, his motto is no drama. That doesn't mean that we don't express opinions strongly, but that we're all a unit, and once we make a decision, we stick with it, we don't revisit it. Uh, he stays very calm, doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, uh, treats people well. So when the leader is setting that example, uh, everyone follows. We believed in him, and we believed in the cause, and we believed in each other. And by the end of this thing, over two years, uh, you forge relationships, and we're like a family. I mean, the hardest thing about this is that it's ended now. It's, I, I've said it's like the end of the movie MASH. You know, the war's over, we're all going home, and we want to go home. But on the other hand, it, it's sort of a bit of melancholy because we've come to love each other and believe in each other, and uh, we know that this, this will never be the same, that we, we went through this experience and it was a singular experience, and it'll never be the same. It may not be the same, and not all of them are going home. After our interview, David Axelrod was named a senior advisor to President-elect Obama and will be joining him in the White House, along with Press Secretary Robert Gibbs. Sick. I wish I'd stay asleep today. 
not afraid to allege sexism during this campaign. Reporters who asked the self-proclaimed hockey mom how she balanced raising a family and governing Alaska? Sexist. Opponents who questioned her experience and knowledge? Sexist. Anybody who questioned the expenditure of campaign funds on clothing and stylists? Say it with me now. Sexist. So what do you call Republican campaign manager Rick Davis, who told the National Review today that Palin thought her interview with Katie Couric would be softer, easier, because Couric is a woman. Quoting from the National Review, quote, on the Couric interview, which Davis says Palin thought would be softer because she was being interviewed by a woman, quote, she was under the impression the Couric thing was going to be easier than it was. Everyone's guard was down for the Couric interview. Because you thought Katie Couric got to the top of the news business by asking lots of soft, girly questions? To be that good, it must be taxing. There's no such thing as satisfaction. You're making things happen while I'm relaxing like a Sunday afternoon. My dad used to tell me I was lazy. I got dance moves like Patrick Swayze. I'm the leftover turkey for the world's mayonnaise. The star next to the moon. Obama vows to wipe out llamas. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. President-elect Barack Obama called the skyrocketing population of domesticated llamas the single greatest threat to the future of mankind today, and upon entering office, promised to make their total annihilation his first priority. According to Obama spokeswoman Tricia Caldwell, Obama is considering all options. President Obama's deep mistrust of the llama population will, though, for now, keep the nuclear option on the table. Obama is already meeting with key members of the pet food industry as he hopes they will play a critical role in phase two of Operation Obama Llama Trauma. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. The Onion News Network, twice as many squares as other news broadcasts, guaranteed. is the top comedian in America, Michael Wiener Savage. What a joke this guy is, man. No one amuses me more than this guy. I, he can't be serious. <laughs> can't do it. All right, let's listen in. I mean, look at the mania. And let me tell you something real quick before you, we start this. He's, when he starts talking about Harvard and privileged people, shockingly enough, he is not referring to George W. Bush. He's referring to Barack Obama. Get a load of this. New Hampshire, Dennis, you're on the Savage Nation. Thank you, sir. Uh, my question was, it's not a question, it's just, uh, I'm 62 years old, and when I went to school, uh, if you didn't cut the mustard, you stayed back. Now, I guess, we have this thing called social promotions. Yes, and you have self-esteem. In fact, now, if you do cut the mustard a little too sharply... They single you out for being a racist. Exactly, exactly. And my, 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 I would like to hear you, you know, your comments on this whole aspect of social promotion, because usually the people that are socially promoted end up, uh, unfortunately, like Columbine, bringing guns to school. Or no, no, no. When you're socially promoted, you wind up as president of the United States. If you're socially promoted your whole life, and nobody challenges you because you're of the proper co uh, constitution and composition and you look exactly right and no one's everyone's afraid to say a word to you why you then go to harvard you then go to the law review you then get elected you then get elected to the next level this is what happens in a country that's intimidated uh... by its own policies and its own fears you put it in perspective for me and i appreciate that and <laughs> but it's, well, this is just the beginning of it my friend oh, you yeah. haven't seen any of what's coming in this country you are going to see a replacement of competent white men 
and I'm targeting exactly the group that's going to be thrown out of jobs in the government. And I'll say it, and I'll be the first to say it, and I may be not the only the last to say it. I am telling you that there's going to be a wholesale firing of competent white men in the United States government up and down the line, in police departments, in fire departments, everywhere in America you're going to see an exchange that you've never seen in history, and it's not going to be necessarily for the betterment of this country. I, I agree with you 100 percent. Why am I the only one who has the nerve to say what's actually going on and what is going to happen under this guy unless he stopped? And I'll tell you why, because I see it happening. No, no, I'll tell you why, because you're the only one stupid enough to believe it. Now, look, before I would have been angry about this. Now I'm highly amused. I mean, this guy's a joke. This is wonderful. I mean, look, listen to what this ignoramus is saying. That the policemen and firemen are, who are competent and white are going to get replaced by Obama. The president of the United States of America has nothing to do with the local policemen and firemen. Michael Savage has no idea how the government works. And who are the, the competent white men that are going to be thrown out? What, like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld? Those kind of competent white men? Oh, no. Egads, please don't leave. <laughs> how about those guys asking for a bailout? Uh, th those are the competent white guys you're talking about? And social promotion? What, Barack Obama was, and people came, they're like, oh, wow, you're born of a mother from Kansas who didn't have much money and a father from Kenya. Let's put you on a pedestal. Who backed up Obama? Who promoted him socially? No one. On the other hand, George W. Bush and social promotion? I mean, look, I, how can you make this argument? How can anyone believe it is the better question? You listen to the Michael Savage program on the radio, and he says Obama only got to where he is because of social promotion, and George W. Bush earned it. <laughs> I mean, which planet? Like, these guys, they live in a different world than us, man. And then the caller is like, oh, yeah, this is what leads to Columbine. Black people becoming successful in America leads to Columbine? Uh, and then, you know, of course... Uh, uh, Savage backs him up, but here's the one that really amused me. Uh, people who cut the mustard a little too sharply, if they do that, they're called a racist. Can anyone decipher that for me? <laughs> First of all, I don't know what cutting the mustard too sharply is, but let's assume that he's saying people who are too successful are called a racist. Why? I don't understand that. I don't understand the logical connection. Even in your crazy right-wing mind, I don't understand the connection. Who calls successful people racist? No one. And besides which, you know who the successful person is? Barack Obama. He's the one that cut the mustard too sharply. Your God, man, they are not attached to logic. It's just they're not interested in it. Man, that's amazing to me. All right, okay, look. God bless, go forward. You keep putting that insanity out there. I'm sure some people will listen because they're amused that you're such a clown and you're very good at your job. You wear really floppy shoes and you wear... Bright red bulbous nose, and you're very good at squirting the water from your flower on your lapel into people's eyes, and you're good at going, and you amuse people because you're a clown. So people, some people listen, but I don't suspect that a lot of people that hear rants like this think, oh, he's got it figured out. Michael Savage, he knows if you cut the mustard too short, you're going to get called a racist. <laughs> oh, man, keep it going, man. Keep the hits coming. <laughs> you make our job way too easy, Drill Sergeant, way too easy. Bad luck comes in from Tampa. Bad luck comes in from Tampa on the back of a truck. Doing 90 up the interstate. We have bad dreams the night he rolls in. We have bad dreams the night he rolls in And we try To keep our spirits high But they fly And they wait When the truck pulls up Out front In the light spring rain And they sigh Like withering flowers let the good times roll on Through these first few desperate hours 
Whatever political direction President-elect Barack Obama decides to take, the elite media have declared a strong preference for their own vision of a warm and fuzzy bipartisanship. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin declared on NBC's Meet the Press that she would love to see McCain in some big position in an Obama administration because he is a person who brings people together. In the Washington Post, Al Kamen wants to see Obama name three Republicans to his cabinet, ideally at the State Department, Energy Department, and the Pentagon. A USA Today editorial on November 7th made a similar point, quote, if Barack Obama wants to show he meant what he said about bridging the blue state-red state divide, there's an easy way to do it. Ask the best of President Bush's appointees to stay on and adopt some of Senator John McCain's better ideas, close quote. Translation, if Obama really meant the things he said, then he should not do some of the things he said and instead do the things John McCain said. Because what the country really meant by rejecting those ideas was to embrace those ideas. As progressive activists push the Obama administration to chart a more leftward path, expect more of this go-slow-or-maybe-even-back-up philosophy, which extends to Congress as well, at least in the mind of U.S. News & World Report's Ken Walsh, who wrote that some Democratic advisors are stressing caution since, quote, so many new members of Congress are centrists that the party won't be able to hold its majority in 2010 if it lurches left with meddlesome social programs and vast new spending schemes. Close quote. I leapt across three or four beds into your arms Where I had hidden myself somewhere in your charm Our golden handshake has been smashed into this shape It's taken magic to a primitive new place Watch and run Although it's the minimum Heroic We hunch together in one chair out on the deck In snow that froze and fell down on the modern set It looked as if I picked your name out of a hat Next thing you know you are asleep in someone's lap Watching round Although it's the minimum Imagine the spectrum here from ruling party of serious adults wielding enormous power over here to weakest high school represented at the Model UN over here. On that spectrum, the Republican Party, circa right this second, is somewhere in the middle, but trending toward the Model UN side. Between the Republican Governors Association meeting and the Republican Party itself, it is looking more like a Saturday night party in somebody's parents' house than the party of Lincoln or Reagan, or dare I say it, George Bush. At this week's Governors Association meeting in Miami, the governor's press conference saw a stage filled with lots of governors, but Sarah Palin getting every last bit of the attention. Now think high school and predict what happened next. Yes, of course, CNN quoting one anonymous jealous Republican governor saying, quote, it unfortunately sent a message that she was the de facto leader of the party. Unfortunately. Others were glad to see Palin acting as if the 2012 door were open for plowing through. Mark Ambender at The Atlantic reports that a strategist for a potential Republican presidential rival of Palin's said, quote, fine with us. Let her be the sacrificial lamb for 2012. And when it came to the governor, came time for the governors to vote on each other, to say by action what they really think of each other, the one assumed most popular, Sarah Palin, she did not make the cut. The Republican Governors Association leadership positions went to Mark Sanford and Rick Perry and Haley Barber and Sonny Perdue. Even Charlie Crist got signed up to chair their annual gala celebration. Uh, but Sarah Palin didn't get anything. She's not even on the executive committee. And it's not like there are tons and tons of Republican governors. Meanwhile, more uncomfortable post-mortem details of the Palin as vice presidential nominee experiment emerged. Rick Davis, John McCain's campaign manager, spoke to the National Review about Palin's clothing. Oh, the shopping spree again. Davis said this, quote, We got her a gal from New York, and we thought, let's get her some clothes for her and the family. It was a failure of management not to get better control and track of that. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing, what it was worth, or where it was going. I wonder who the gal from New York is. How you get somebody a gal from New York. 
Anyway, the RNC is meanwhile stepping over John McCain's still warm political body to file lawsuits to overturn the major legislative legacy of John McCain's career in Washington, the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law. Yes, the Republican Party is suing just 10 days after McCain lost the presidency to erase the biggest political leg legacy of their nominee for president. That's beyond high school cruelty. That's like Hollywood-level cruelty. Speaking of showbiz, the RNC put together a spiffy new video touting the bright future of the Republican Party. The future of the party? It stars Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and the current President Bush. And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Remember, that's the video celebrating the future of the Republican Party. That is awkward for so many reasons. Joining us now is Ariana Huffington, who's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post. Ariana, thanks for being with us tonight. Nice to see you. Thank you, Rachel. Good to be with you. Um, Ariana, you famously were once a Republican. Are, are your heartstrings t being tugged a little bit to see them in a state like this? No, but you know what I'm worried about? That we really do believe in the two-party system. And we have to do, all of us, Democrats, progressives, we have to do something to save the Republican Party. Because look what's happening. At the moment, it's suffering from an advanced case of schizophrenia. They've all kind of accepted in, to different degrees that the last seven and a half years have been a failure. Newt Gingrich, more than anyone, has told us that again and again, that we have to own up to the failures. But they are not willing to look at the central governmental principle that has been behind all these failures, which is their belief that, as Ronald Reagan famously said in his first inaugural address, government is the problem, not the solution. If they are not willing to address that and let us know whether they still agree with Ronald Reagan or not, then they will remain in that limbo state of complete schizophrenia, because while they are demonizing government and continue to do so, including in Miami at the Republican governor's Association, they also look to it to bail out Wall Street, to bail out AIG, and basically to save us. When you think about the um, survival of the two-party system, when you think about the risks, even to people who don't consider themselves allied with the Republican Party at all, the risks of the Republican Party being really in the wilderness for a very long time, are you suggesting that there ought to be sort of a political marshal plan for the Republican Party, that a, a defeated country is dangerous and, and inhumane and a defeated party is dangerous too? Yes, and I think actually you and I should co-chair it because we are women <laughs> and we are therefore more compassionate than men. We should co-chair the Salvaging the Republican Party uh, Marshall Plan on the grounds that we do need the two-party system. Otherwise, we're going to leave it in the hands of Sarah Palin, who is waiting for God to open the door, uh, or in the hands of uh, Grover Norquist, who the spiritual guru of the Leave Us Alone coalition. Remember, that is the central philosophy of the Republican Party. Uh, Grover Norquist also famously said, we must drown government like a baby. So these people... People basically have no credibility anymore, and yet they continue to be the ideological roots of the Republican Party. He said he wanted to get government down to the size where he could drown it in the bathtub, which made right. you imagine a baby. It made me imagine some sort of rogue squirrel that you trapped in the attic. That means that we're very different people. Ariana, one last question actually about Sarah Palin. Why do you think there is this continued sniping over Sarah Palin? I mean, from a Republican Party perspective, she did really energize their base. The media can't get enough of her. Why are they all trying to get a piece of her? Well, because really, although she did energize the base, she's an embarrassment. Let's face it. Uh, she could not even give a speech that was uh, anything beyond the sound bites um, of the election campaign. She basically cannot update what she's saying. She, it seems as though she has no particular views on anything, except, you know, her antediluvian views on creationism, she believes in it, on uh, uh, the fact that she's against stem cell research. So basically, Sarah Payne represents the worst embarrassment for the Republican Party. It's not just the clothes. It's the allegiance to the religious right, it's the anti-science perspective, and it's the fact that she doesn't seem to be updating what she believes. Joe the Plumber even made an appearance at her press conference. Ariana Huffington, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, the woman America owes for making Matt Dredge obsolete. Thank you very much for coming on the show tonight, Ariana. It's great to see you. Thank you.
A decade ago, I never thought I would be at 23 on the verge of spontaneous combustion. Woe is me, but I guess that it comes with a territory, an ominous landscape of never ending calamity. I need you to hear, I need you to see, but I am half, I can take an exploding scene, but I never In very much the same vein, in the Chicago Sun-Times, November 5th, columnist Robert Novak resisted the notion that Barack Obama's victory represented any sort of public mandate, comparing it unfavorably to Franklin D. Roosevelt's second-term victory in 1936, when, quote, the defeated Republican candidate, Governor Alf Landon of Kansas, won only two states, Maine and Vermont, and Democrats controlled both houses of Congress by wide margins, close quote. Obama's win, Novak continued, quote, was nothing like that. He may have opened the door to enactment of the long-deferred liberal agenda, but he neither received a broad mandate from the public nor the needed large congressional majorities, close quote. Okay, you say, Novak has a strict definition of what constitutes a mandate, and Obama's reported 52.6 percent just doesn't fulfill it. But no, that can't be it, because after the 2004 election, when Novak appeared on CNN's Capital Gang on November 6th, Mark Shields asked him directly, Bob Novak, is 51% of the vote really a mandate? To which Novak responded, quote, of course it is. It's a 3.5 million vote margin, close quote. Novak also had reasons for why some people might be in denial about it, adding, quote, but the people who are saying that it isn't a mandate are the same people who are predicting that John Kerry would win, close quote. And further explaining, quote, see, the thing is that a lot of people in this town, the chattering class, the politicians, the nice liberals all around the eastern seacoast, they let their heart talk instead of their heads. And I'm afraid some of the people at this table really thought so. So the people who say there's not a mandate want the president, now that he's won, to say, oh, we're going to accept the liberalism that the voters rejected. But Mark, this is a conservative country, and it showed it on last Tuesday, close quote. In case you got confused, which is understandable, Novak's position on mandates is that 52.6% is nothing like one if it implies endorsement of liberal ideas. But 51% does mean one, emphatically, if it confirms the country's essential conservatism. It's pretty simple, really. a new blog out, and JR pointed it out to me, and I read the first couple of paragraphs, and I'm kind of bored by it. He talks about the seance comment that Obama made, then he talked about how he talked to the president of Poland, and there might have been a miscommunication about the missile defense system, and I'm like, okay, Snorfest, whatever, right? And then the final paragraph is a gem. Let me read it to you. Obama thinks he's a good talker, but he is often undisciplined when he speaks. He needs to understand as president, his words will be scrutinized and will have impact whether he intends it or not. So far, okay, that's a fair criticism from the left. I think Obama's a fairly excellent speaker, but he wants to criticize him when he doesn't have much. Okay, I understand. Here's where it gets fun. In this regard, President Bush is an excellent model. Not kidding here. Not kidding. I'm quoting verbatim here. Obama should take a lesson from his example. Bush never gets sloppy when he's speaking publicly. He's not joking, okay? And I am reading it verbatim. He chooses his words with care and precision, 
which is why his style sometimes seems halting. In the eight years he has been president, it is remarkable how few gaffes or verbal blunders he has committed. If Obama doesn't raise his standards, he will exceed Bush's total before he is inaugurated. Do I have to say anything more? That is unbelievable! Obama will have more blunders before he's inaugurated than Bush had in eight years? Bush is an excellent model? He never gets sloppy? On which planet? On which planet? Are you freaking nuts? Oh, I'm going to have to go to the audio bank here, man. Let's go crazy. Take your pick. I mean, come on. Budget man. I sent my budget man up to the guy. Who budget man? Oh, you got, you got a CIA man too. Don't worry. Spent a little time with the CIA man this morning. Keep catching up on the events of the world. Yeah, uh, CIA man. Uh, you know. You know, it, we used to think we were secure because of oceans and previous diplomacy, but we realized on September 11, 2001, that killers could destroy innocent life. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. It fooled me, we can't get fooled again. This man is a total idiot. See, without the tax relief package, there would have been a deficit, but there wouldn't have been the commiserate, uh, the, 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 not commiserate, the, the, the kick to our economy that occurred as a result of the tax relief. Uh, let me quote Hinderaker again before I give you the last couple. President Bush is an excellent model on how to speak. Obama should take a lesson from his example. Bush never gets sloppy when he's speaking publicly. The key for me is to keep expectations low. Uh, John, did you hear that? We got an issue in America. Too many good docs are getting out of business. Too many OBGYNs aren't able to practice their, their love with women all across this country. Bush never gets sloppy. I'll give you one last one. What do you think tribal sovereignty means in the, in the 21st century? And how do we resolve conflicts between tribes and the federal and state governments? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tribal sovereignty means that. It's sovereign. It's, you're a, you're a, you've been given sovereignty and you're viewed as a sovereign entity. Okay. And therefore, the relationship between the federal government and tribes is one between sovereign entities. John Hinderaker, I'm quoting him again. In the eight years he has been president, it is remarkable how few gaffes or verbal blunders he has committed. These people don't live on the same planet as us. You think that's all? I got one more from Hinderaker. This was from earlier. This is recent. This is an earlier quote about Bush. It must be very strange to be President Bush, a man of extraordinary vision and brilliance, approaching genius. He can't get anyone to notice. He's like a great painter or musician who's ahead of his time and who unveils one masterpiece after another to a reception that, when not bored, is hostile. I mean, so here's my question. How do you have a conversation with folks who don't reside on the same planet as you? In John Hinderaker's planet, John, George Bush is brilliance bordering on genius. He's never made a verbal gap. He is the spokesperson for speaking eloquently. And that Barack Obama should learn from how George Bush speaks. Now, how am I going to have a conversation with this guy? It's not that John Hinderaker is stupid although I would be willing to entertain that argument, it's that he is not attached to the same reality that I am. I, I don't know how to converse with him. He's speaking Greek to me. I'm like, Bush, he's like, brilliant. Obama, blunder after blunder, verbally. Okay, I, we're not speaking the same language. I don't know what to tell you. I, good luck to you, man. On Your planet is a scary place. The planet where George was a genius? I don't want anywhere near that planet. And... John, I got news for you. Neither do the rest of the country. That's why George Bush today stands as the most unpopular president in American history. As long as we've been doing polling, he now, according to the last CNN poll, 
is at a 76% disapproval rating. That is 10 points higher than where Nixon was when he left office in disgrace. Now, but that's in my world. Maybe in your world, Richard Nixon was a terrific president who served out his term and was one of the best presidents we ever had. Probably so. Thanks for listening, everybody. I just have a few updates to give you today. First of all, I haven't uh, had a chance to talk to you since the big conclusion came in and we lost the podcast awards. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't really a surprise. The, the people who won have now won three years in a row. They're a big radio show and actually make their living doing a, a radio show five days a week and asking all of their untold numbers of listeners to vote for them in the podcast awards. So stands to reason uh, you know it, it wouldn't bother me so much except for the fact that they're such uh libertarian douchebags uh, who do that show and it's it's frustrating to to have such um you know kind of weasley people win but in any case uh that's the situation and i'm currently working on a scheme to uh unseat them next year but uh I, that that will uh, develop over time. We'll see how that goes. And um, so thank you. Thank you all for your um, patience and understanding with the show as the schedule has gotten a little bit screwy. Um, we stopped our regular twice-a-week schedule as we had been doing 100% out of necessity due to the election. So um, our plan is to get back on schedule and and that will be happening of course now um with the thanksgiving holiday here in america popping up um i'll be going on a trip to visit family which will throw another wrench in the works and so we'll we will be doing a few shows in december and trying to to get out a decent amount of content and then of course the the big winter holiday regardless of what you celebrate uh, towards the end of December, we'll be throwing in yet another wrench to the schedule. So um, just bear with us. Uh, you know, we'll we'll do what we can through the end of the year, and January we will uh, we'll come back strong. So um, just be aware of that. And thanks for uh, thanks for putting up with it. In the meantime, as we keep things going, it would be an awesome help to us if uh, if you could help send in clips for the show. Uh, and this has been talked about before, and, and there's um, a, a really great and easy way to do it. On the website, there's a tab called uh, Find and Send in Clips. And, and basically, a, as you probably understand, a lot of the clips that I had in kind of my, um, my little bag of tricks became totally obsolete after the election. You know, you can't start using clips that are speculating about... Uh, who's going to win the election weeks after the election. So although a lot of the stuff we use, since it's uh, what we call evergreen and can be used at any time, um, the election was, was a big deal that, that made those evergreen clips not so green anymore. So we're uh, way down on our stockpile of clips. So we're trying to build that back up. And if you guys could help, um, visit the website bestoftheleft.com and check out the tab about finding and sending in clips. Um, it, you know, you don't have to sit through a long show to find a, a clip that's that's good enough for the show. You can actually search for it, search for the audio in you know all these different shows uh, available to search through, and and you know find what you want to find, whatever topic you're interested about. You can find clips, um, and you know I've I've done this before. It's possible to find enough clips to to do a show in you know just an hour or two. So imagine if you sat down and spent 30 minutes looking for clips, you could find one or two solid clips and send them in to me. Uh, and it would if if just a few of you did that, it would make a huge difference. So that's it for the podcast. Now to the blog. Of course, I really recommend that you check out the blog, uh, subscribe to our RSS feed that you can find on the website bestofleft.com and subscribe to the Best of Left blog. We have great uh, you know, articles 
that, you know, basically our point is to do what the podcast does. We want to bring you the best of the best. So we just do quick little, you know, reviews and highlights of some of the best articles or videos or whatever we come across. Um, you know, we just do a, you know, quick little review and, um, and so you get a lot of news in uh, a short amount of time. It saves you a lot of time, and uh, you still feel like you're you're keeping up on the interesting things going on out there in the blogosphere, as they call it. You know, it's a, it's sad that the uh, there's not really a podosphere that anyone talks about. So, you know, the po- podcasting doesn't have quite as cool of a term for what we do, but such is life. Aside from just reading the blog, the other aspect of it, as we make it bigger and better, is that we're continuing to look for new bloggers to help contribute. At the moment, we have a great team of bloggers who regularly contribute, but in order to make the blog as good as it possibly can be, we obviously want to be able to provide as much content as we can, and that means more and more people uh, helping to contribute. So for the time being, we're continuing to look for new bloggers to uh, help contribute and uh, and write articles for us. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and contact me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com and I will get you set up with all the information you need. So that's it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took a modern picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fun farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fun farewell to a friend Couldn't get things right